Thank you, Jesus. Oh, Lord, we do thank you for the wonderful gift we have in you of the, f- the fact you told us that if we come to you, we will have the living water. Lord, we are amazed by your love and your grace and your mercy towards us. Lord, where would, where would we be without you? Lord, we thank you that we do and can come to you for healing, for, for all of the things that we need. You are the great physician, and Lord, we are, we are blessed to be called one of yours, one of your children. You call us friends. Lord, now as we take time in your word tonight, we pray that you speak to us directly, Lord, that we would, that we would find personal application in your word for our lives tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you, before you sit down, say hi to those around you tonight. And, and Go ahead and have a seat and take out your Bibles. Open them up to the book of Genesis. It seems like it's been a really long time since we've been in Genesis. Maybe we should start over. No? No, we won't. We won't do that. Chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. Hope you all had a great Christmas and New Year's time spent with family and Sure has been a, a blessed and busy time for all of us, I'm sure. So, Genesis chapter 18. Last time, if, if you were with us and we're going through this, well, you'll remember we're going through the life of Abraham now. If uh, the book of Genesis is broken up, the first part really talks about more of events that took place. We talked about creation, we talked about the fall, we talked about the flood, talked about the table of nations and the Tower of Babel events. But then the, the book of Genesis starts to focus on some very important, prominent people. We talk, we'll talk about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And we're looking at the life of Abraham now. It's been promised a son. And if you remember last time, we talked about the fact that God did promise this son to him. And he and his wife started thinking, well, we're running out of time. We're getting old. Why don't we, you have a son through my handmaid Hagar? And the disaster that came from that and the continuing repercussions from that decision. We talked about that last time. But then we finished off going through in chapter 18, the first part of it, where God appeared to Abraham personally. Jesus, we talked about this being a theophany, God himself incarnate, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself, along with two other angels appearing to Abraham, telling him specifically that his wife Sarah would be having a son, and it would happen in, in the next year. And we talked about that, again, Sarah's listening, she laughs and denies the fact when God said, why did your wife laugh? And she said, I didn't laugh, yes she did, and that's where we left it off last time. We'll pick it up there, verse 16. It says, And then the men, that being God and the two angels, rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring, up, bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if what they have done entirely according to this outcry which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Verse 29, he spoke to him again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it in account of 40. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once more. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. We see here the first recorded instance in Scripture of intercessory prayer. Abraham praying on behalf of someone else, but behalf of another people, another group of people. And we can learn a lot from this prayer if we just kind of dissect and look at the, some of the specifics involved in it. First of all, we see here that Abram, Abraham stayed close to God. He was directly next to him. His proximity, he drew near to the Lord. And in that, we can see that the longer we spend time with the Lord, the closer we are with the Lord, we're going to understand more about God's view and, the, and what's going on with God in the world. And we know specifically then how to pray for things that are going on within the world. A lot of times people feel like, well, I need to be out in the world in order to understand what needs to be prayed for. I need to be actively involved in the world. Well, it wasn't Lot that was interceding on behalf of Sodom. It was Abraham was. He wasn't in Sodom, but he was close to the Lord and, and talking with the Lord and understanding the Lord's heart. And upon that, he was impressed with the fact that he needed to intercede on their behalf. God revealed to him what he was going to do because Abraham stayed close to God. Now we also see in his prayer, his reverence towards God. He, he acknowledged who he was speaking with. He acknowledged who God is, what he is. He, he talks to, he is the almighty, he's merciful, he's righteous, he's just, he's holy. Merciful and righteous, merciful and just. He went to God on behalf of mercy because he knew that God was the judge, but he was a merciful judge. He, he, he wants to extend mercy, therefore he's praying for mercy, but also understanding that he is a righteous judge. He approached him in reverence, and, 
He underscores that again by explain, uh, understanding who he is. We talked about that this weekend, the importance of our prayer and in our relationship with God, understanding who he is and who we are. Look at how Abraham refers to himself as dust and ashes. Now, that is not a false sense of humility. He understood who he was. And we are told, and we talked about this the last couple of weekends as we're going through the book of Hebrews, we are told to come boldly before the throne of grace with boldness, but again, not on anything that we have done. It is nothing, it's not based on anything that we bring to the table. It's based on Christ's righteousness imputed to us. And Abraham comes boldly to the Lord. A few times almost seems like apologetically as he's coming, but coming boldly, but not again based on anything he has done. Just understanding his relationship to God, the fact that God considers him a friend as, and is encouraging him to come, as we are as Christians. Now we see a very persistent fella here, <laughs> sticking to the prayer, coming back again and again. Not again, though, like we talked about last week. He's not trying to bend God's will to his. If he was, he would have just kept on going. He says, all right, if Lot's still good, we're good. He'd have kept going, but we see this in the end of the prayer. He stops when he gets to 10, and I believe, although it doesn't outline it there, I believe that that was because he understood God and I are on the same page here. I have gotten to that point. I am understanding God's willness. I'm not trying to bend God my way. God all along wanted this. God, again, is a merciful God. He's a long-suffering God. I think it shows, again, Abraham's total dependence on God, understanding that he is totally lost without him, completely depending on him. And that is where we need to be in our prayer. Again, persistence, but understanding in that our total dependence on him. We're told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks to God. Why? Because that's his will for us in Christ Jesus. That's his will that we pray continually. We're not wearing God out with our, with our petitions. We're not, we're not annoying him when we persistently go to him with what we need and, and our desires. We're not wearing him out. The Bible says that's his will that we pray without ceasing, that we come to him. But we also see in this the specificity with which he prays. He started with 50 people, worked it down to 45, then 40, then 30, then 20, then 10, specifically praying. Again, sometimes we can look at, at what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks that we pray, Lord, if it's your will, and we don't get specific enough. The Bible tells us we have not because we ask not. We need to ask specifically. We need to pray, Lord, impress your will upon my heart, and then pray that specifically. The Bible tells us in Philippians 4, verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests be known to God. Prayer and supplication, those are two different words. Prayer is that general communication with God that we are continually having, that we should be having throughout the day. But supplications are those specific requests. And we are to do that in everything. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So we see an outline for, for prayer in general, but specifically intercessory prayer. And again, as we pray and as we understand the heart of our Father in our prayer life, we can see how we can specifically pray for others in need. 
Now, one thing that it's important that we see that we don't miss in here is God's heart is revealed in this. It starts out, I'm going to go and destroy Sodom, is what he tells Abraham. And he allows Abraham, and again, I believe this is his will entirely. Abraham didn't change God's mind, that he worked it all the way down to where if 10 righteous people are found in this city of Sodom, which is a big city, it's a, it's a grow, huge city, if 10 righteous people can be found there. And God agreed. Yes, if 10 righteous people are found there, I will spare the city because of those 10 people. That shows God's heart. He's not, again, the one up there with the lightning bolt ready to just destroy the, the, the whole place. And it's just, it's Jesus that's holding them off. No. God is a loving, long-suffering God. 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us that he's not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That is his heart. And he hears and responds to prayer. I just, I love examples of this that are recorded for us, and there are many, where people intercede for others, people pray specifically to God. Several times Moses stepping in for the Israelites and praying to God. God saying, yes, thanks for asking, because that's what I wanted to do all along. But he utilizes us in that. He allows us to be a part of his grand plan, the things that he's doing through our prayers. That's why prayer is so important. God, God is waiting for us to be actively involved in prayer so that he can do certain things. Why he does it that way, I don't know, but he does. There's power in prayer. One other thing to see in that before we move on specifically to something else, that we should never underestimate what God can and wants to do through a minority of people. Through he, he, like I said, through 10, he would spare Sodom if there were 10 righteous people. Sometimes you can feel like you are all alone in your family, maybe, as following Jesus. You feel like you're all alone in that situation. Never underestimate what God can do in and through you in that situation. At your job place, at your work, you might feel like you are on an island all by yourself following Jesus, and it's just corrupt and everything around you. Never underestimate what God can do in and through you. Two ways. First of all, in prayer. Abraham singly was praying for, for Sodom. Singly, by himself. And there was power in the prayer, obviously. God was listening to it. He was, he was reacting to it. He was moving in it. But also, if there were only 10 people that were righteous in Sodom, it would have spared the city. In your circumstances, in the thing that you are surrounding, don't give up on that. Continue to be righteous. Continue to follow the Lord. Continue to pray. Ask other people to be interceding for your situation. And you remain solid in your faith. And see what God will do. Now look at verse 19 for a moment. It talks about something that's, that's interesting with regards to Abraham specifically. God is speaking, obviously, loud enough for Abraham to hear him. And he says, for I have chosen him, Abraham, so that he, command, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. There's a reason why God chose Abraham for this whole thing. And again, it's not based on Abraham's righteousness. It's not based on Abraham's incredible abilities. We have seen time and time again how Abraham has stubbed his toe along the way. 
It wasn't because of the great guy Abraham was. It was because of what God was doing in and through Abraham. And the one thing that he could count on Abraham to do, what we're seeing here is, I'm going to tell him what's going to happen because Abraham is going to tell his children. He's going to pass it on down. He's going to share with his kids what, what, it, what, what happened here. There's a reason why he's telling him this. And through his words and through his actions, he is going to stand out as a witness for what God does. Unlike what we're going to see with Lot coming up in a little bit. But his words and his actions, both. And I say that because this is such an important thing that we are all involved in. Every one of us, especially parents and grandparents, but every one of us who has any contact whatsoever with the next generation, we need to be sharing with them. We need to be passing the, what we know on to them. It's a ministry that we are all called to. We need to teach our future generations. We need to teach them about sin and the consequences of sin. We need to teach them how to pray. Abraham passing this long. Again, this is a first recorded instance of intercessory prayer. But he's going to pass that along as to how to do that. How many of you, especially parents, would say that you, stand, you would stand up and, and get, to get prayer back into schools? Now, I won't have a show of hands because I don't want any of you to do something that, to feel uncomfortable about it or to raise your hand when you shouldn't. But how many of you pray with your kids every day? I, I, I'm not looking. I just, I... We can say all we want, I want prayer in schools. But we need to be praying with our kids every day. That's not the school's job, that's our job. And we see in Abraham here, God said, I've chosen him. He's going to command his kids and his household to keep my way. That's our job as parents. That's our job as grandparents. I'm in the club now. <laughs> now, we see something interesting. And again, I don't want to st stick on this too long. Why did Abraham stop at 10? Did, again, did he, did he feel like he was pushing God too far? I don't know. There isn't a necessarily a reason. One reason, I, I, the only thing I can think of is you got Aaron and his wife, that's two. You know, his sons and wives, if the, there are sons, there might be at least, there seems to indicate there was at least one son and his wife, that's a couple more. Two daughters with their husbands and two virgin daughters, you add all that up, you got ten. Maybe that's why. Maybe it was just Lot who was left, and he said, okay, there's got to be nine others other than Lot. I don't know why he stopped there, but he did. He stops at 10. God agrees that if he can find 10 righteous people, he will spare Sodom. Abraham goes back to his home. The Lord moves along. Now, as we get into chapter 19, we see verse 1. It says, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. We see now that only the two angels go on to Sodom. But we see something, and again, if you've been following along with us, this is an extremely important thing that we've, not, we've followed the progression through. Where is Lot now? He's sitting in the gate of Sodom. When we first started talking about this back in chapter 13, it's when Abraham gave Lot the choice of where he wanted to go. And it said, first of all, Lot looked towards Sodom. That was the first step. The second step was he pitched his tent towards Sodom. He wasn't in the city yet, but he started moving that direction. The third step in chapter 14, he moved into the city. 
Now we see here in chapter 19, he sits in the gate. What does that mean? That's where all of the, the city business took place, was in the gate of the city. That tells us that Lot was a leader in the city now. He wasn't just, he wasn't just your Joe Blow on the you know, part, citizen. He was one of the leaders. In the city gates at that point, that's where people, if they had a disagreement and they had a problem with their neighbor, they would get, grab their neighbor and basically go right down to the magistrates, the officials, the elders of the city and have their disputes settled right there at the city gate. They needed to be there. Everybody knew that's where they were. When people came in, Visitors would come into the city. They would welcome them. A lot of the commerce took place there. But they, the elders and leaders of the city, that's what they said. They sat in the city gate, and here we see Lot. He's completely gone totally all in with what's going on in Sodom. Now, that does not mean that he was partaking in the, the debauchery that is going on, because it does tell us, 2 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8, tells us that Lot was righteous that he was oppressed by the things that he saw, that it tortured him to see these things going on around him. But being a leader within the city certainly, again, comes alongside with the fact that he's condoning it, that he's trying to have the best of both worlds. We've talked about this a little bit as we've talked as the progression as we've seen it, trying to live both lives, trying to walk both sides of the fence, we talk about this in, in Christianity as the carnal Christian, the one that's, that's a Christian on, on Sundays, comes to church and hangs out and maybe goes to even a Bible study during the week. But when they're at work and when they're at, the, at home and they're doing their own thing, they live like the world does. Nobody would be able to tell the difference if they just popped in and, you know, unannounced. But as we've talked, you can't have it both ways. The most miserable man on the planet is not one who is completely all in in the world. The most miserable man on the planet is the one who's got too much of God in him to enjoy the world and too much of the world in him to enjoy God. That is the most miserable man. And that's where I believe Lot was. It talks again that he was tormented in 2 Peter. And as we've said, you can't have it both ways forever. Neither side will allow that. God won't allow one of his own to do that without going behind the woodshed. <laughs> and the world won't allow it either. And we're going to see that as we continue on. Chapter 19, as we take a look, starting now, picking up in verse 2. Lot, again, the, the angels are coming. I don't believe initially he, he recognizes them as angels. He just sees them as two strangers coming into, uh, into town. Verse 2, it says, And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may arise early in the morning and go on your way. They said, however, no, we, need, we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Something about these guys, though, must have caught his attention because he said, please, you, you can't stay in the city square. He knew what would happen. He knew the people that lived in that town. He knew all about them. He says, you can't stay there. If you're, if you're not just going to pass right on through, you've got to come to my house. I will take care of you there. And they finally agreed to do that. He prepares food for them, and they ate. Verse 4, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called a lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him. And he said, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. 
Now behold, I have two daughters with whom have not had relations with a man. Please let me bring them out to you and do, do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men and as much as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien and already is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because, of their, out, because their outcry has become so great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Really even hard to read and imagine the situation in the scene. It's, it, it really is difficult to think that a, a society could ever get to this point. Literally what happens, and the, the, it's very clear, these two men come into Lot's house, and it says men from all over the city, young and old, from every quarter. We're not talking about three or four men that snuck around behind the back alley. The entire city basically came out, surrounded the house. Men from all over, young and old. Looking back again to chapter 18, verse 20, the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. This is, this is a horrific scene. But there are many, not a few, many, liberal churches and people that look at this, and you know what they say the sin of these men of Sodom was? Their lack of hospitality. I'm not kidding you. They, they, they refuse to say, you know, the, again, the fact that is so many of, of the, the agenda now is we don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to call this what it is so we can look at this and say, well, you know, it does say that Lot says don't, don't beat the door down because, uh, you know, I, I, I'm taking care of them. You know, I'm, I'm being hospitable. And they're saying, nope, we can't do that. And they say that the word no there has several connotations, one sexual, but the other one is to, to get to know someone. And they're saying, well, that's what they wanted to do, was just to get to know them. Again, anything that they can to not say what it really is. The Bible's very clear as to what's going on here. This is, you have to do some serious tap dancing to get anywhere away from the situation, and it's a horrific thing. Jude verse 7 says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Again, it's not being inhospitable. It says gross immorality. And it, talks, it, it goes on to say the wages of that, the punishment for it, eternal fire. Again, though, a lot of people say, well, we don't want to go there. We don't want to offend people. We don't want to... Well, 2 Peter 2, verses 6 and 7, again, talking about just talking in this area, talk, just before it talked about um, Lot's role in that, he says, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot 
oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Very clearly outlining that this is ungodly behavior, that it's sexual in nature, and that there is eternal condemnation attached to it. Now, again, I have to say what it is. He's talking about homosexuality. The Bible is clearly teaching that homosexuality is wrong. People look at that, and again, as a pastor, there, there is pressure more and more all the time. I haven't had it directly to me, but I've read articles continuing throughout the world, in Canada, and through several places, that this will be considered, if I read the Bible and explain what it says, it will be considered hate speech. This isn't hate speech. This is love. It's not hate. It's love. If, if a doctor had the correct diagnosis of a disease and he withheld it because he felt that it would be too intolerant to just give the one cure, would you consider that love or hate? We, we want intolerance from our pilots, from our pharmacists, but when it comes to eternal life, we want tolerance. Again, it's not hate, it's love. And we talked about this last week that sin is not bad because it's wrong. God calls sin, sin. He calls it wrong because it's bad. There are consequences to sinful behavior. God is a long-suffering God. He's just and he's righteous. I've heard it said that many people you know, feel, again, that it's, it can't be God's will for this because they've been, they were born this way. I, I can't believe that. It, nowhere else in nature does this happen other than in the human race. It doesn't happen anywhere else in the animal kingdom, so it can't be natural anywhere. And it can't be born that way. It's a choice. People could say that same thing then about any sin. I was born this way. No. We all, have, we all have things that we need to deal with in our flesh. It's a choice every individual and societies, by the way, need to make. This didn't happen overnight. This was not something that happened all of a sudden one day. It happened over time, and the society continued to accept it and, and said it was okay, and it then even became able to come behind it and glorify it, obviously. Romans 1.32 says, And although they know the ordinance of God and that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Society coming alongside and saying, It's, not, it's okay. We'll glorify it. It's, it's fine. Go ahead. Now, this seems to be, if we look at this, and we know the history that we talked about a couple of chapters ago, especially inexcusable when it comes to Sodom. They saw God's power in action. Remember when we went through this a couple chapters ago? When they were captured by the, the other kings and taken away and Abraham and his small little army went and rescued them with the power of God and Abraham didn't take any credit himself. He said it was God alone who did this. And then they saw Melchizedek and they heard his testimony. The king of Sodom. He was right there. The people of Sodom heard it. And again, not only turning their back on it, but they flaunt it. 
They don't try to hide their sin. It's, they're open about it. Isaiah 3 verse 9, again, speaking specifically about Sodom. says, the expression of their faces bears witness against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Now the reason, even pausing here and talking about this, is we live in a country that continually more and more, not just with homosexuality, but with outright blatant sin everywhere, is becoming more and more tolerant towards sin and intolerant towards the word of God. And again, like Sodom, we are particularly inexcused from that. We as a country have seen God's miraculous hand at work in our country. We have had an incredible influx of a Christian witness. We were built on the foundations of Christian principles in this country. Regardless of what people want to say, we are a Christian nation. We were built on that. But unfortunately, just like Sodom, we've rejected it, corrupted it, and we flaunt it. We flaunt our wickedness. I don't know if we, you can turn there real quickly. I, I, I didn't want to spend this much time here, but Isaiah chapter 5 talks about God speaking to the, the Israelites, the Jewish people. And this particular chapter, if you, if you have time, I would just recommend you jot this down and read Isaiah chapter 5, because in it, it's, to me, it's one of the most eye-opening and, guys, we got to get busy and on our knees chapters in the whole Bible about the the United States, because we fit right into this mold. We have been so blessed, just like the Jewish people were as a country, and we've turned our back on God. But in particular, verse 18, it says, Woe to those who drag iniquity with cords of falsehood and sin as with cart ropes. What that is talking about is they're not trying to conceal their sin anymore or hide it. They're openly displaying it. They're pulling it along, along behind them like a cart saying, hey, look at my sin, openly flaunting it. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And it goes on again, continual woes being called out, but Again, we see this everywhere in our society today as a country. What used to be never even talked about is flaunted openly on television. It's glorified in the movies. What used to be, again, horrific, if you turn away immediately, is broad, public television right out in the open. I do believe that judgment is coming. And it is warranted. So what do we do? Well, we need to intercede like Abraham did. We need to, we need to witness. We need to share. We need to warn. We need to warn. We have to share the truth as politically incorrect as it is. Because again, just like the doctors and the pilots and the pharmacists we can't be tolerant with it. We can't avoid the subject. We can't not talk about it. Now, there is a way that we have to. First of all, it needs to start with a burden that we have for the lost people. Not in, a, in the business of exposing their sin, not in a business of beating them down or, or doing that, but a burden for their souls. A burden for the lost and dying people that are going to hell. 
It has to start with a burden. If you don't have, for, if you don't have that burden, pray for it. Not condescendingly or indifferent, again, towards the sin. Again, remember, it's only by the grace of God or we'd be right there with them. Intercede. Witness. Warn. Now, as we continue and just look again through this, I have no explanation for Lot's behavior. I don't. I mean, I look at this, and again, the only thing that I can say is you spend enough time in it, you get desensitized to what's going on, and you don't, you're not thinking straight anymore. He, he, he calls, the, he's, they're, they're pounding down the door, they're beating down the door saying, let me at those guys that you brought into your house. And he goes out, and what does he call them? Brothers. Hey, brothers, don't, don't, be, don't, don't be getting too carried away here. Brothers. Again, he, he got so into it, so desensitized to it. And he even offers his daughters in exchange. Again, I have, I have no words to even try to describe that. Why? How could you have fallen so far away from that? But again, other than just being so caught up in what's going on around them. But even that, even that that offer of his two virgin daughters to this mob, that didn't appease them. They were like, who are you to tell us how we're supposed to act? And again, first of all, coming down and morally judging me, but secondly, they they did have some ammunition. Who are you? You're you're sitting in our gates. You're you're getting money from us every day. You're wealthy because of all the stuff, that all the business you're doing, and now you're coming down on us? Who are you? Totally destroying his witness. He strikes the, the, the angels, pull Lot back in, strikes them with blindness. Now, either that's physical blindness or absolute confusion. We don't know what it is, but whatever they did, it worked. They, they, they were lost, confused, didn't know that. The judgment is coming. He, they said, get your family and get out. And we pick it up there at verse 14. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was, was upon them. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let us escape there. It... Is it not small? That is my li- that my life may be spared. He said to him, "Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town with which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I can do nothing until you arrive there." Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew out of the ground. But his wife, beca- his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. 
I think one of the biggest tragic consequences of this entire story of Lot, not Sodom, but Lot himself, is he goes out now, the angels warn him, and they say, go get your sons, go get your sons-in-law, get your family, and get them out. And it tells us that he goes to his sons-in-law, who are going to marry his daughters, and they think he's joking. The consequences, again, of this double life that he's been trying to lead. And he goes to them now and tries to say, this is the right thing, we got to do it. And they're like, yeah, whatever. We've seen you take advantage of this this whole time and everything. This is the example. And now we're just going to cut and run? I, I don't think so. You can go ahead. And I think what's even more tragic, although, again, it doesn't specifically say it, but we can kind of draw the, the connection. He doesn't even bother with his sons. He doesn't even go. To, he, it's like, I don't even need to waste my time with them. I know where they're, they're, they're fully in on. The incredible tragic consequences of Lot's compromise with the world system. It affected his family. He had, he had no credibility because of the inconsistency of his words and his walk, his, his, his actions in what he was saying. He had no credibility, not only with the people of the town, who are you to tell us anything, but also with his own family. And then, again, he, he delays his leaving. He's like, he's like trying to hang around, even though this has been so blatantly shown to him now. And he's, he's still hanging on. He's, they had to take him by the hand and get him out of town. He wasn't even ready to leave still. It's amazing, though, how that is so much like our lives in so many things, in our own little sins that we have we know the things that in our life that we know that we need to deal with and and God has laid it on our heart and made it clear and obvious to us that we need to take care of it yet we still hang on to it I reminded back at our men's retreat earlier this year the example was given from Exodus chapter 8 the the plagues and the second plague that was brought upon the Egyptians was frogs and the, 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 God rained down frogs that came out of everywhere. They're just disgusting. They're everywhere. They're dying everywhere. They're in the flower pots. They're all over the place. And finally, Pharaoh has enough, and he calls Moses in because his magicians could make more frogs, but they couldn't get rid of the frogs. So he has Moses come in, and he says, Moses, you got to get a hold of your God and get rid of these frogs. And Moses said, all right, I'll do it. When do you want the frogs gone? And you know what he said? tomorrow. Let me sleep with the frogs one more night. But what frogs are we hanging on to? What things do we know that we would be better off without? We know that if we honored God in this thing in our lives that we know that we're supposed to get rid of, that we would be so much better off, yet we hold on to it. One more night with the frogs. One more 15, 20 minutes in Sodom. They had to take him by the hand and get him out of the city. And then it says that he was afraid to go to the mountains. Still trying to compromise. Still trying to work out a last minute deal. And we see in Lot's wife a tragic illustration of the reluctance and unwillingness to let go of the world. It says that she looked back. It indicates that she looked back longingly like, oh, I wish I could be back there. Jesus tells us that we need to deny ourselves. We need to take up our cross daily and follow him. He said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom of God. 
Jesus himself in Luke 17 pointed directly to this instance. Remember Lot's wife, he said. And in so doing, he said, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Hanging on to the past, hanging on to those things, hanging on. we can't move forward in our kingdom work if we're continually looking back and holding on to that. Paul gives us the, the antidote, the flip side of that in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah, actually there are five cities in this this ring that's right there. It's right alongside the Dead Sea. They've actually excavated some area now that they believe was sought where, it, where it all was. There was a time when um, archaeologists and historic history people said there, there was no such place as Sodom and Gomorrah. There was no evidence for it. They have found evidence since that the, these towns being talked about in other records and everything from the past. So once again, the Bible proves to be accurate. But now they've uncovered some ruins in the area along the Dead Sea, and it's amazing. If you've ever seen pictures, and if you have, go, go home and, and Google the Dead Sea and take a look at some pictures. Google Sodom and Gomorrah today and you, to see it. It's desolate. The, nothing grows there. It's, it's the most abandoned place. I mean, it's just it, amazing. But it used to be so lush that Lot said, I want to go there. Totally destroyed. Now we see in verse 27, after, after they've gone now, Lot's wife's turned into pills out, Lot and his, his family now, are, and his daughters now are up in the, in the caves. It says, now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He goes back out now to the place where he had been talking with the Lord the day before. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, and he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. I can just imagine Abraham the next day getting up and probably had that sinking feeling in his gut. You know, and, and he knew the people there. He knew what was going on, although it doesn't tell us he ever visited there, but he had to have some understanding. And he looked down there and he just saw the smoke and everything rising. If you can imagine just the, this devastation that had five cities totally destroyed, sulfur and fire raining down from heaven. And I got I to gotta think just this sinking feeling in his heart. It doesn't tell us anywhere that there's ever a reunion between Abraham and Lot. So we don't know that it happened. It's recorded in here, and there's evidence that Abraham wrote this that passed it along down the line that eventually got to Moses, that was, as we've talked about before. But it doesn't show that it, there was ever a reunion. There has to be probably initially that thought, oh, did Lot make it out? We don't know. Got to be thinking, man, what a waste. Well, unfortunately, the... the horrible part of the story isn't over yet. We'll get through chapter 19. I wanted to get you chapter 20 tonight too, but we're not going to do that. Um, verse 30, Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. 
Then the firstborn said to the younger, the two daughters talking to each other, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him so that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. On the following day, the firstborn said to her younger, to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with our father. Let us make, drink, let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus the both daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. Again, the depravity, the tragedy just continues. Lot didn't make a whole lot of good choices in his life. And again, here we see another example. He's brought out graciously from Sodom. And instead of, first of all, going where he was told to go, he bargains to stay down in this little town called Zoar. He goes there. Again, the angels say, all right, we got, you got to get out of here before we can do what we're going to do. So go ahead and go there. And he goes there. He doesn't have to spend long there and realize, I can't, I can't stay here. So he finally goes up into the mountains like he was told. But the question that plagues me is, and maybe you, where should he have gone? Why not go back to Abraham? <laughs> I mean, I made a mistake. He's lost everything by now anyway. Remember, the reason he had to leave before is because of all of his property and all of the other things. That's all gone now. It's just him and his two daughters. But I got to think it was pride or whatever else maybe that was just there. And he used to say, I can't do that. I got to try to make this on my own. But again, we're told, as I mentioned earlier in Second Peter, that he's considered a righteous man. All of these things that are stated here about Lot that we've talked about, yet the Bible records him as a righteous man. If it wasn't for Second Peter, would any of you think Paul, that Lot is righteous? I, I'd have a hard time putting him in that category, but praise God that our righteousness isn't based on our deeds. Romans 10.10 says, With the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness. And we see the fact that though his faith might have been small, he did have faith. He did go. He didn't look back as his wife did. And in that, all I can say is keep praying for those that you love that are out in the world like Lot was. Keep praying for them. Keep interceding for them. If they truly have made a profession of faith, a real the surrendering of their life to the Lord, and they have fallen away for a while, you keep interceding for them. You keep praying for them. Because the righteousness of God is in them. And God will not allow his own to continue down that road. It might be a difficult situation that brings them out. It might be a catastrophe. It might be a Sodom and Gomorrah that finally gets them out, but they will get out. And you keep praying. Now again, we see just the final, as we close here, the couple more tragic consequences of a father's compromise with the world system, his daughters. This is what they thought they had to do because of what they saw around them as they were growing up. 
They didn't say, man, we got to get on our knees and pray to God. We got we to seek the Lord as to where we should go next. They said, our, our future is lost unless we get our dad drunk and have relations with him and repopulate the earth through him. Amazing. Parents, always remember that your decisions have consequences far greater than just you. Your kids, your grandkids can all be affected by the decisions that we make. It's important that we always remember that. But God, again, God is just an amazing God how he continues to, to work all things. Tells us that the, the son of the first, the oldest daughter, she named Moab, he became the father of the Moabites. Anybody know a famous Moabite in the Bible? Ruth in the genealogy of Jesus. Ben-Ami became the, the father of the Ammonites. Again, enemies of Israel caused a lot of problems with them, as did the Moabites over the years. But Namah, Solomon, one of Solomon's many wives, was an Ammonite. And 1 Kings 14.21 tells us that her son was Rehoboam, also in the lineage of Jesus. Ain't God cool? <laughs> well, like I said, I wanted to get through chapter 20 tonight, but we're not gonna. So we will leave it there. But again, as we leave here, I, I, this is kind of one of those heavy things. It's funny because I was talking to pa uh, Pastor Tony the, a little earlier, and I said, man, I got to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah tonight, you know? And he says, well, at least you're talking to adults. He says, I got to talk about circumcision to high schoolers. So I think, okay. <laughs> I'll give him that one. I'm glad I'm here. <laughs> but one of the other things that I wanted to touch on and close with, going back to Abraham's intercessory prayer on behalf of Sodom and his, his nephew, Lot, is when we're praying, we... Jesus told us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All of that before we get to our stuff. And as we think of our prayers and look, go back through the week, and how often do we just jump right into, God, this is what I need. This is what's going on in my life, Lord, help me. Your will be done, but here's what I need. Instead of going before him with a concern of what God is doing in the world. What, where God is involved. Where things are happening around the world. Missionaries. Think, ways God is using people around the world to, to spread the gospel message. How, how God is, is desiring to be glorified in our country again. How we need to intercede for our country so that God is glorified. In our city, in our community, in our church. What is God doing and how he can be glorified. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Well, let's, let's pray and close. Lord, we do thank you for your amazing word. And Lord, <laughs> this is a difficult section to go through. But Lord, we see the importance of it because there's so much wickedness in the world around us. And Lord, in all of the darkness that we've talked about today, the incredible light that is still there is the faith of one man, Abraham, and his interceding on behalf of the others. 
Lord, I, I pray that all of us would be challenged by that. Not to give up on the world around us, not to condemn those around us, but Lord, to intercede for them, to pray for them, to share the truth with them, to share your light with them. Go before us, Lord, that you be glorified, that you be honored in all things. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, we'll pick it up chapter 20 next week. God bless you. Have a great week.